and I'll be happy. I suspect that is probably the most fundamental question that shapes all of our lives. The search for happiness is the reason why people marry and actually the reason why people divorce. It's the reason why some seek promotion after promotion after promotion in work and some settle into a lowly job. It's the reason why some turn to drink and others never touch a drop. Every single one of them actually is seeking happiness. The uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote this. He said, All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they employ, they all strive towards this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both but interpreted in different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end. This is the motive of every act of man, including those who go and hang themselves. The deepest motivation that we have the deepest drive, the thing that drives actually every action, says Pascal, is the desire for happiness. Even if we think that happiness will be ending our life early. And then he goes on though. All men complain. Princes, subjects, nobles, commoners, old, young, strong, weak, learned, ignorant, healthy, sick, in every country, at every time, of all ages and all conditions. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? Yeah, we yearn for happiness, we long for happiness, we have an image of what it would mean to be happy, says Pascal, because actually deeply imprinted in our, our subconscious, our, our primal memory, our, our, our fundamental makeup as human beings is a sense that there is a place of happiness, there is a condition of happiness, if only we could find it. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. I want to give at least part of the Bible's answer to that question. How can I be happy? And let, let me say, this is deeply pertinent because we live in a very unhappy society. Now, there is actually lots to be happy about. We've got... Wonderful technology, plenty of food, great freedoms, a thousand and one other things um, our uh, modern Western society has. But actually those who study such things say that actually, consistently, at least over the last 50 years, we have been getting less happy. 
Um, some say that the rising generation um, uh, in, the, in the Western world are the first generation for at least a hundred years who are more pessimistic about life than their parents. Um, this unhappiness in the uh, place of plenty um, in the West has been called um, by some people and popularised by Oliver James affluenza. And the songs of a sense are all about finding happiness, aren't they? Remember we've been looking at um, these songs, if you haven't been uh, um, with us regularly, let me just tell you that there are these 15 psalms from 120 to 134 that seem to have been gathered together for pilgrims to sing. Every uh, three times a year, the Israelite pilgrims went up to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. And um, they sang as they travelled. And these hymns seem to have been gathered for that purpose. And we've been... Um, seeing over the last few weeks that the issues that they sing about are very pertinent to Christians in the 21st century. Because though we don't have a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to God's temple, we are on a pilgrimage to God, to eternity. That is what the Christian life is all about. It is a journey. And the spiritual issues that the psalmists are talking about in Psalms 120 to 134 are very much contemporary spiritual issues. We've seen a number of them. Many of them touch on the sense that we are not there yet. We're not in the place of happiness yet. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 126, it talked about those who sow in tears. Psalm 130, we looked at last week, um, speaks of one key source of unhappiness, actually our own sin that wells up from within us. So the psalm begins with a deep, passionate cry, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. We're not there yet. We're not in eternity. God has not produced his new creation, his new heaven and his new earth yet. We are not fully enjoying resurrection life yet. Things are difficult. But Psalm 131 is one of those, those psalms that celebrates a person having come to a place of peace, a place of happiness. He's found in the midst of troubles and trials and not being yet with God, he's found the secret of contentment. That's what we're going to look at then. The first key secret, he says, in verse 1, is humility. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters 
all things too wonderful for me. Do you notice in the ascription at the, at the top, this is a psalm of David. It's a very interesting slant on it when you think of David. David who was the greatest hero of the Old Testament. David who defeated innumerable enemies. David who united the whole nation of Israel. David who was the one who established Jerusalem as the capital city of this united um, nation of Israel. David who was um, praised by um, many, many thousands. More than that, he was more than just a great king. He was a nationally acclaimed musician before he became a king. And even more than that, if you want more, he was a poet, one of the greatest poets of the ancient world. Imagine that. Imagine being that great. Pretty difficult not to be proud, isn't it? But the Lord has done something in his heart. He has a deep humility of the heart. My heart is not proud, O Lord. But he also describes it in another way. He has a humility in his heart, a humility, we could say, of the eyes. My eyes are not haughty. The, the, the um, image there is uh, effectively saying, I do not look down on people. I do not look on people as if from a great height. It is extraordinary, isn't it? That someone as great as that could say when he's before his God, my heart is not proud and I don't look down on people. How does he achieve that? Well, perhaps uh, uh, one key clue is the psalm that comes just before this. Perhaps on purpose, put right next to Psalm 131. A psalm that speaks of personal sin. With you, O Lord, uh, who could stand, verse 3, if you kept a record of sins? But verse 4, with you there is forgiveness. David knew he was a sinner just like everybody else and a forgiven sinner. He couldn't claim to be any better in the, in the most fundamental dimension of his personality. Yes, great gifts he may have had. Yes, a great and prominent position he may have had. Yes, great wealth he may have had. But when the chips were down, he was a sinner in need of God's forgiveness like everybody else. And it's so important that we grasp that and see that for ourselves. Some of us here, you know, we're very bright. We are very able. We are from relatively wealthy backgrounds. But in God's eyes, we are not actually particularly better than the, the drunks who gather outside of our church building. How dare any of us look down 
on another human being. If we know our hearts, we know that we are simply sinners in need of forgiveness. And it is not anything good about ourselves, not anything wonderful about us, that meant that God offered that forgiveness and gave us that forgiveness. It was simply because he chose to, simply because he loves us. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. But how does that make us happy? That's our question for today. How does this this humility that he's speaking of lead to a sense of contentment? Well, let me suggest to you, that's um, because one of the most destructive drives that there is in human beings is the drive to persuade ourselves that we are somehow better than the next person, that we are somehow great. The drive to earn respect from other people. The drive to earn self-respect, to create some sort of sense of aura of greatness within ourselves. The drive to earn God's love. And all of them are, end up with us deeply disappointed, deeply bitter, deeply frustrated, deeply lacking contentment. We love to look down on other people because for a moment we feel better. But deep down we know we're not. And so there's this this constant, constant drive to try and hide that reality from ourselves so that we can feel better. Actually, we only really feel better when we say with the psalmist with you there is forgiveness with you there is love I remember a friend of mine good friend of mine and I we were talking about what we were going to do with our lives I, I wasn't yet a Christian and he wasn't then and isn't now um, I remember us talking and, and he said you know at the end of the day Happiness is sitting down and knowing that you've just got a little bit more than your next door neighbour. And even though I wasn't yet a Christian, I knew that was rubbish. Happiness is actually simply learning to be humble before the great God and to accept his love and forgiveness. Humility of the heart then. Humility of the eyes that doesn't try and put ourselves above above anybody else. And there's a third uh, dimension to that humility that the Apostle speaks of there. Humility of the mind. Do you see that? I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. 
Britain. Actually, our culture for the last 200 years has been absolutely furious with this aspect of um, Christians. Yeah. Immanuel Kant, nineteenth uh, century philosopher, said that the the, the whole spirit of, of of the Enlightenment, the, the movement of of of, of intellectual um, uh, endeavour of the last two hundred years, the whole spirit of that could be summed up with the phrase "dare to know." And he and many others ridiculed Christians for saying. Um, that we needed a certain humility in our minds. Um, Nietzsche, another um, uh, philosopher of the 19th century, um, described Christian faith as a protracted suicide of reason. But actually, slowly, in our Western world, over the last couple of hundred years, we have come to realise and had to accept that the deepest things we cannot know Good many um, uh, philosophers, for instance, have come to realise that the deepest questions about life have not found particularly any better answers than there were 2,000 years ago. Questions like, why do things happen as, as they do? Why is there suffering in the world? What does the future hold for me? Why am I like I am? Now we will look in vain for complete and comprehensive answers to those questions. There are mysteries in this world which are just too great us, but the Bible reveals a, a, a hundred fundamental truths that are meant for our good and they're meant to be good enough for us. We do not know what the future holds, but we know that the living God is the creator and the controller of all things, past, present and future. We do not know why evil comes into this world, but we know that the one God is good and evil does not have absolute power in his universe. All things work, in fact, together for the good of those who love Jesus Christ, as Horatio Spafford felt profoundly. I do not know what makes me do the bad things that I do. And deeply frustrated as I am by those, my most precious promise is that Jesus Christ died for my sins, all of them, all of my sins of yesterday, of today, and forever. And therefore God will pronounce on me and on every single person who puts their faith in Jesus a promised forgiveness. I do not know what tomorrow holds but I know 
at least enough of what eternity holds. Eternity of resurrection, eternity of new heaven and new earth, eternity of being stripped of all impurities, an eternity of being perfected in love, eternity of seeing God and Jesus face to face. I know enough to be content. Don't concern yourself with questions that will never find an answer. You say, but I I must use my mind. I must question. And my answer to that is yes. Christians um, alongside everybody else must ask questions, must probe, must think. But Christians more than anyone else must recognise there is a limit to how far we can probe. A limit to how comprehensive our answers can be. There are things that are too wonderful for us. And there are many, many people still today who say this is just the sort of obscurantist nonsense that confirms that Christians are just a bunch of navel-gazing fools who do not look, do not think. And I want to say, no, the fools are those who think that they can know everything. They're the real fools in this world. Those who think that they never actually have to just trust. The psalmist David, Psalm 131, had found contentment in a humility of the mind. There is a story, I have no idea whether it's true or not, that uh, Karl Barth, towards the end of his life, he was a great theologian of the 20th century, and he was asked what the summary of all, how he could summarise all his theology. And he said, uh, I would summarise it in this way. Jesus that loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So don't trouble yourselves with things too wonderful, things too great. Trust in the things God has told you. By all means, probe. By all means, ask questions. But recognize there is a limit. Who has known the mind of the Lord? said the prophet Isaiah. He is far greater than us. And as you learn to trust in those things, you will find contentment. The first secret of uh, of contentment is humility. A heart that's not proud. Eyes that don't look down on other people. 
a mind that is content to know what we do know and to leave the imponderables to God. And then, I don't know whether you call it a fruit of that contentment or whether it's part of the contentment itself. But verse 2 perhaps has one of the most beautiful pictures of what it means to be a believer in the whole of Scripture. And I've summarised it by that phrase, free dependency. I have stilled and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. It's a carefully chosen image to try to capture what it means then to be someone who has humbly learned to trust the living God. They are no longer a dependent baby. Um, Shakespeare described them mewling and puking in his mother's arms. They are, they, 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 uh, they are not, a believer is not someone who just simply has to rush for the, 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 the next feed and the next nappy change. But uh, neither are they um, the sort of terrible twos, those who've had children know all about that, that sort of stage in early childhood when, when the child is desperate to say no, to assert their independence, um, but also deeply anxious about being independent from their parents. And so you get this sort of this wrestling in their own hearts and in their own minds, which causes terrible uh, behaviour. <coughs> Nor, frankly, are they the stroppy teenager who is almost an adult, wants to be an adult, but can't quite bear to be an adult all the time and uh, projects all of the anger about that situation onto their parents. Nor, very interestingly, is, uh, is uh, David's description that of an adult, an adult who is a fully autonomous, independent person. No, he chooses this this image of a weaned child. A child now that no longer needs just hourly feeds of milk. A child is just a little bit more independent from mum than that. Now starting to take solids. But a child that's not yet ready to run away. They are still, in a profound sense, dependent, in fact, um, uh, a weaned child with its mother, David describes there, in its mother's arms, still. That is the picture that he wants to have, wants to give us, of what it means to find contentment in God. Not babyishly dependent, just uh, uh, running for the next meal, the next bit of milk, but not so independent 
that we can think we can leave the Father's side. That's the secret of happiness. What does that mean for you? To be honest, I suspect that there aren't many of us here who are the little unweaned baby. In many ways, it would be nice if you were because there is a natural process to be had which will leave you as a weaned child. Sadly, more of us are at those more stroppy ages of childhood, frankly. We are the terrible twos who, uh, uh, when something bad happens to us, we stamp our feet and say, No, God, I don't want to do that. And then dissolve into tears and insecurity or, or, uh, um, uh, or whatever. Because we know that we can't be independent. There are plenty of us here who are stroppy teenagers as well. I'm sure there are actually plenty of us here who have learned as the years go on to live a relatively independent life of God. Frankly, you turn up on Sunday and you occasionally pick up your Bible and so on and that's quite nice. It's like two friends meeting in the street but any sense of dependency on God, well, no, surely, I'm, I'm an adult. I need to become an adult. You never become an adult in your relationship with God. Never. Now, the secret of contentment is free dependency. There is a measure of freedom. We're learning to pick up the spoon and feed ourselves. we still need our mother's arms. A very, very large proportion of my work is in dealing with people who one way or another simply feel unhappy, unsettled, not right. Or sometimes, to be honest, picking up the pieces of after they have exhibited behaviour which they thought would make them happier. And it just didn't. And I want to say to you, it is the most important thing in your life to learn the secret of happiness. And it rests here in this psalm. Humility. Are you prepared, like Horatio Spafford, to simply humbly accept what God is giving you and say, it is well with my soul because I have a good God? Are you prepared to live in that State of free dependency. Yes, you can make decisions. Yes, you can self-feed. Yes, you can get out there and do wonderful things for God. But never as an independent. Always as a weaned child. 
One of the things that comes up again and again and again when uh, people look at the issue of happiness is that Christians, actually when they choose to distinguish it, evangelical Christians top the charts for happiness. Because the Spirit does give contentment. The Spirit does give humility. The Spirit does enable us to live as weaned child. As weaned child. God is working amongst us in that way. God can work in you in that way. What we need to do is learn to trust the living God. Let's pray. Perhaps you need to do business with God yourself. Just in the silence, this is a moment to do that. Loving Heavenly Father, um, some of us have been walking with you for many, many years. And we've seen how slow we have been in learning these lessons. Father, forgive us, but spur us on, we pray. Some of us here, Lord, know how much damage we've done to ourselves because we've acted in ways that we thought would make us happy. It's just made us miserable. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you for your steadfast love. Still inquired our hearts, we pray. And Heavenly Father, some of us here well these truths are foreign to us. Show us the truth of them, we pray. Bring us to Jesus Christ.
creating us, Lord, pure hearts, humble hearts. But do not take the higher place. Do not look down on others. But do not concern ourselves with things too wonderful. But are at peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer begets and maintains holy courage and magnanimity in evil times. When all things about you tend to discourage you, it is your being with Jesus that makes you bold. He who uses to be before a great God will not be afraid to look such little things as men in the face. Let's pray now.